Welcome to MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the truth behind medical research with unbiased, evidence-proven facts, powered by Encore Research Group and hosted by cardiologist and top medical researcher, Dr. Michael Corrin. Hello, my name is Dr. Michael Corrin, and I'm delighted to host another episode of Two Docs Talk, which is a series that we've been doing here on the MedEvidence platform. And as you know, MedEvidence is our platform to, to try to present medical information in a unique and creative way. And we're really excited about this Two Docs platform or the, the Two Docs Talk series because I think people get a lot of insight to see how two very qualified physicians talk about a subject matter. And we can all learn based on the way we analyze these things and where we take the data that are out there and the clinical trial results that are out there, and then turn it into practical advice for the people who we see in the office each day and our family and friends as well. So I'm extremely delighted to have Dr. Neil Sangvi with me today. Uh, Neil and I are actually clinical partners, so we've known each other for, for many years. And uh, Neil is a tremendous resource and a fabulous clinician. Um, you know, I've referred a lot of patients. I'm a general cardiologist, and I've referred a lot of patients to Neil as an electrophysiologist. And I've only got stunningly positive reports from all my patients. So thank you, Neil, for that. That's actually the most important thing. Sure. But he's also very well accomplished. And we, we do share a credential, which is that we both had cardiology training at Cornell New York Hospital, which I guess, was that Presbyterian by the time you got there? It was not quite at that New stage when I was there. But yeah. uh, we, 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 we share that, that commonality. So we've, uh, we have that, that part of our fellowship as well. So thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, Neil, thank you for being part of the MedEvidence platform. Thank you for participating in Two Docs Talk. And we're going to talk today about atrial fibrillation or AFib. And um, AFib is out there. It's a very common problem. So maybe you can set the stage a little bit by just giving us a little bit of the epidemiological background about AFib. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really look forward to our conversation today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to uh, talk to you and your audience. Uh, yeah, AFib is, is a trendy word. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's the most common heart rhythm problem in the world. Uh, we have, I would say, somewhere between 5 to 7 million Americans that suffer from atrial fibrillation these days. And it's projected that in the next 20 years, that could balloon up to about 15 million people. So it's something that most of uh, people out there have probably heard about. Either they themselves suffer from it, or they may have a family member that suffers from it. So let's talk a little bit about it. So what is AFib, right? Mike, you know, you and I, we deal with patients all the time that come in and we end up having to give them this diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. And, you know, they come in with various symptoms, but physically what's actually happening with their heart, so they understand what's happening, is that they have four chambers in their heart, as you know two on the top, two on the bottom. And typically these chambers beat in sync. So the top beats and the bottom beats in a one-to-one -one fashion, and that's a normal rhythm. Right, and, and just for clarification, atria, the atria or atrium is the top and the ventricle is the bottom. Perfect, yep, exactly right. And so it's- Did I, did I get that right? It's been a little while since I reviewed that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we gotta go back to those basics yeah. all the time, Mike. Yeah, uh, nowadays yeah, everything is right. so specialized that you probably have to send it to somebody who's an atrium person or a ventricular person. <laughs> it's so true. You know, medicine's gotten so complex these days, you know, and you know, it's your expertise in, in, in sort of 
lipid management. I'm turning to that. You're turning to me for little rhythm issues, and we're, no. we're all trying to play in our little sandbox. No, absolutely. Well, I, uh, we're, being, we're being facetious, of course, but uh, yes, course. thank you for the explanation. Uh, so, so the upper chambers, you know, as you as you mentioned, the atrium, they 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 begin to fibrillate. They try to quiver, and it's that quiver that creates the atrial fibrillation. That's the description, and it's that quiver that then translates to symptoms and other associated problems that can occur. And this, you know, this quiver can occur at any stage in life, quite frankly. You know, I've had uh, teenagers that have come to me with atrial fibrillation all the way up into late adulthood. And so it is something that can affect many patients in different stages in their lives, though commonly you and I, I believe, would be seeing patients much older uh, in their, uh, in their uh, spectrum of age as they present to us. Absolutely. So, so explain to folks what causes atrial fibrillation, what, what, what factors? Yeah. So, you know, it's one of the curses we probably face as having the opportunity to live a little bit longer than we used to. So age is a contributor for sure. As we get older, the risk of developing atrial fibrillation goes up. But in addition to that, it's a lot of other things that we're suffering from. High blood pressure, obesity, sleep apnea, um, having heart disease. So having had a coronary heart attack or some sort of heart attack, having a valve problem, these are all major contributors to atrial fibrillation. There's even a uh, genetic predisposition in certain instances, but that's an area that just really hasn't been well-defined yet. Sure. So, okay. So just from the, the lay person's perspective, there's certain things you kind of hear as storylines. So, uh, and I'll let you comment on each of these things. So, for example, somebody that's had high blood pressure for many, many years, we we often tell them that that's a major risk factor for atrial fibrillation. So maybe you can explain how that happens. But we also have people that drink a lot of alcohol and then have some problem with an arrhythmia, often atrial fibrillation. So maybe uh, you can touch base on that as well. And we also see people who are having some you know, severe nutritional problems that can end up having some arrhythmia, a commonly atrial fibrillation. So just you know, help people understand that from you know quickly those different type of scenarios. Yeah, sure. So the hypertensive patients by far probably the most common patient we have, right? The patient whose blood pressure isn't controlled, and you know they call it the silent killer for a reason, and it's because it's constant stress on the heart. The way I like to tell patients or describe it to patients is: imagine that you're constantly putting pressure on a car engine; it's not able to get its output out because there's some restriction in some tube somewhere along the way. Well, at some point in time, that engine is going to say enough is enough. I can't handle this anymore. And then you go into fibrillation as a, as a consequence, along with other problems that may develop. Similarly, alcohol has direct impact on actually the properties of the heart in, in several ways. One, it can be a toxin to the heart and that toxicity can cause the heart to weaken. And that weakness can then lend towards arrhythmias, including atrial fibrillation. And Another avenue is that it has properties on how the heart actually electrically discharges and recharges. So too much alcohol or a heavy ingestion of alcohol in a short period of time can actually impact how the heart is activating and discharging itself and lend towards a situation where an atrial fibrillation event can be triggered. By extension, there's also other pressure points. Sometimes you can have AFib because you've just had surgery done and the release of stress hormones can trigger an episode of atrial fibrillation, you know, right, as right. you and I have probably seen as well. Um, the uh, well, the treatment of yeah, the treatment of high blood pressure with diuretics that can lower your potassium and magnesium could be another factor. 
Absolutely. So the electrolytes, as you were talking about, sometimes these these electrolytes, the potassium, the magnesium, sometimes mm-hmm. calcium, they are involved in the actual physical electrical processes of the heart, of helping the heart discharge and recharge. And it's this discharge recharge aspect of the heart of the heartbeat that lends towards AFib being triggered. So you have a disruption in how this is done properly, and you can have atrial fibrillation occur. So get, getting into the alcohol issue just a little bit more. We used to have something called holiday heart syndrome. Do we still do we still use that term, or do we have a better term now? Uh, no, it's still <laughs> applicable. I mean, though it's not just the holidays anymore, is it? Oh yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> any day heart syndrome. <laughs> That's exactly right. You know, it's a good time. Any, heart any drinking day heart syndrome. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> so, so help help people understand that a little bit. So, is it you know the your person that goes home and and has a martini with his or her spouse? Is that person at risk or is it the the person that drinks you know 14 beers with their friends watching a football game on Saturday or some combination thereof? Yeah, no, you know, that's a great question. A lot of patients ask, well, what what's what's an appropriate amount? And you know, what we believe is that it's really the quantity that's ingested in a short period of time that's sort of shocked the system. And so it's that person who's binging, you know, and who has a binge event of some form. And and the quantity may vary for different people. For some, it may be just three beverages and for others it may be 10. But the point is, is that it's a high quantity for that person in a short period of time that could be that trigger because that's a, the system's not used to that level of alcohol. It gets inundated with it. And next thing you know, AFib is kicking off. And to to explore some of these things a little bit more, we talked about high blood pressure and, and certainly I've had an interest in how blood pressure affects the heart size and function over time. Uh, so is that a necessary part of the process of hypertension leading to atrial fibrillation. Uh, Walk us through any data that we may have to look at structural changes in the heart, particularly related to blood pressure and and how that puts you at risk for AFib. Yeah. I think it's a contributor. Obviously, uh, there are patients who don't have hypertension that suffer from atrial fibrillation, but as it pertains to hypertension itself, there's a variety of different physiologic changes that occur to the heart and anatomically. We know that the heart can develop something called diastolic dysfunction as a uh, as a consequence of hyper, uh, hypertension, meaning that the relaxing ability of the heart diminishes. Well, you have a stiff heart, it's not emptying as well, it's building up pressure. And that pressure backs up because that ventricle, which is that bottom chamber that we talked about earlier, is attached to that atrium, which is right above it. And it can back up pressure into that atrium. Now that atrium is starting to stretch. When that atrium stretches, it has a tendency to have misfires occur, and then those misfires cause atrial fibrillation to happen. So there is definitely an anatomic and physiologic consequence of hypertension that's untreated. And the thickening of the heart muscle, the lack of relaxation of the heart muscle is a strong driver of atrial fibrillation. And then on the other end, severe hypertension unchecked can lead to a stretching and weakening of the heart muscle, which is a whole different problem, which also, again, leads to pressure in the heart, atrial fibrillation, and then, you know, consequences of congestive heart failure and such that we've talked about in the past. Well, th- thank you for that great explanation. So one of the things that uh, patients and friends and family ask me all the time is, how would I know if I'm in atrial fibrillation? So if you want to comment on that a little bit, that is probably helpful yeah. for the audience. You know, Mike, we're, we're living in a cool age right now, you know? Yeah. So historically, it was simply the s- symptoms, right? And the most common symptom is the sensation of a fluttering in the chest or a, what, what it's described as a palpitation or an irregularity or a feeling of something quivering. That's common words. But what you and I have seen is there are a lot of patients who don't have that symptom. But what they do have, they'll sometimes say, all of a sudden, 
I'm getting short of breath with activities that just didn't get me short of breath. I'm all of a sudden drained and fatigued when I otherwise wasn't. And it's an abrupt change. But what's really cool in today's day age is the fact that we have these wearables, right? Yeah. This Apple Watch, right? And I was I was a naysayer. I wasn't sure if these wearables <laughs> were going to be very powerful in predicting AFib. Yeah, but I'll yeah. tell you, I've had a number of patients come in and saying, I'm feeling off and my watch is telling me that I got a problem and I'll, I'll get a tracing and lo and behold, it's not 100%, but it's fairly predictive. And so patients have been discovering AFib more frequently because of some of these wearable smartwatches and such as well. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about that. Right now, we're doing clinical trials using technologies to determine if people are having arrhythmias. And uh, we're working with a company, for example, right now that's very interested in the concept of taking people that come into the hospital with strange symptoms, either they passed out or they had a little TIA, transient ischemic attack, and and some neurological problem, and we're not sure exactly what's going on, and then giving them these wearable devices that can track their, their heart rhythm over a course of time and get other insights from their heart to see whether or not we can figure out what the heck's going on. Yeah. So we're going to jump into those issues in our next uh, part of this series of Two Docs Talk Atrial Fibrillation. Thanks for joining the MedEvidence Podcast. To learn more, head over to medevidence.info or subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform.